Good morning to you, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask that you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Just a week ago or so in, a, in our community group Bible studies, we were marveling uh, together at the glories of God in creation in Genesis 1. In creation, God's glory is especially seen in His partiality toward man and woman, who are the pinnacle of His creation in day six. Our God knows something about partiality. Not even Satan, who was likely created on day three, is shown the same kind of grace, favor, love, kindness that God gives to Adam and Eve. God is partial toward beings made in His image and likeness. We love this about God. He loves us. He is partial toward us. Weak, frail, broken, sinful as we are, He still has His eyes set on us. However, among men and women, on a very personal very individual level, God is not partial with you at all. God shows no favoritism to any one of us based on any aspect of our person, be that the color of your skin, your hair color, your eye color, who your parents are. When it comes to the grace of God and salvation, God is not influenced more or less to save anyone based on any aspect of their person or personality. We love this about God as well, right? God is not partial to any one of us for any reason. Whether you believe that you should get into heaven because your dad is a pastor, that doesn't get you there, nor does it prevent you from heaven. You shouldn't be denied salvation because you were privileged uh, as the son of the president, nor should you be automatically given entrance into heaven if you were raised in the difficulty of war in Israel or being raised in Mead, Washington. Not one ounce of your character, of your personal ability, successes, or sins contributes in any way to God's desire and ability to save you. Friends, that's glorious news, both to the Jewish soldier and to the Hamas terrorist. That's incredible news. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle John goes out of his way to make sure that his audience understands Jesus saves entirely with impartiality. Jesus' salvation is impartial. He will save who He wants, when He wants, how He wants. For His whole life, the Apostle John himself was a Jewish racist. After his own personal salvation, the Apostle rejoices, however, in the fact that the God that he now serves is entirely impartial. God will save Jews and Greeks, men and women, young and old, big sinners and little sinners. You are in Acts 10.34 where the formerly Jewish racist apostle Peter has been confronted by Jesus about his own racism and bigotry against non-Jews. He was told three times in a vision, what God has cleansed no longer considered defiled. Jesus said this to Peter not only in relation to dietary laws regarding meat, but more importantly about Jesus' plan to take salvation to the Gentiles. When Peter is brought to the house of the Roman centurion named Cornelius, he preaches the end of his own racism and the glory of Jesus' impartial salvation toward all men, where Luke records in Acts 10.34, Peter's words. And opening his mouth, Peter said, I most truly comprehend now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the one who fears him and does righteousness is welcome to him. And brothers and sisters, look at this. 
Look at this room. Look at your neighbors. Look all around us. There are not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble here. What a ragtag bunch of sinners we are. We come in from all walks of life, from all manner of sin and depravity, and the Lord chose to place His grace and unconditional favor on us. Yeah, that's how it works. As that, with that for our setting and our opening thoughts, now turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. And let's see again the impartiality of the salvation that Jesus applies. John is going to show us this glorious aspect of God's salvation. Our God's salvation of men knows no partiality. He doesn't save based on merit. You can't earn his salvation. God doesn't require that you love him first in order for him to save you. Nor does he require that you clean your life up before he gives you spiritual second birth. It is to God's great glory that he is not partial in the delivery of salvation to sinners. Such is the case in both John's, John chapters 3 and 4. You see, in John 3 and 4, the apostle is treating us to Jesus' personal ministry of evangelism in two very specific, very intentional lives. In chapter 3, the life of Nicodemus is in focus. Nicodemus himself being the premier salvation authority in all of Israel. And in chapter 4, the life of a lowly Samaritan woman is confronted. John wants us to consider the lack of partiality in Jesus' salvation of two polar opposite personalities. The contrast between the lives of Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman could not be more vivid, stark, and varied. William Hendrickson says the contrast between chapter 3 of John and chapter 4 is very striking. I might start with the similarities first. A couple of similarities. James Boyce notes that both of these two are spiritually lost and empty. They both make crude, little, literal interpretations of Jesus' words. They are both self-righteous. They both hold unbelief, hostility, pridefulness. They're both obstinate and ignorant. That's what they have in common. Let's look at the contrast, though. Consider these striking contrasts. We have a Jewish man with a name versus a nameless Samaritan woman. A rich theologian living in luxury versus a poverty-stricken laborer carrying pottery. He is highly moral while she is highly immoral. He is highly esteemed while she is highly despised. He comes cloaked under the cover of darkness at night while she meets Jesus fully exposed under the sun in the heat of the day. These two are coming from polar opposite ends of the human spectrum. And yet Jesus chooses to engage both of them in conversation for the explicit purpose of saving their souls from hell. John's point for packing so much contrast into chapters 3 and 4 of his gospel is to glorify Jesus' salvation of all kinds of people. From the least to the greatest, from east to west, from black to white, red, green, yellow, and brown, Jesus' salvation knows no bias. No favoritism, no prejudice, no partiality. Jesus' salvation is by his choice and given by grace alone. You can't earn this salvation. That would change the very addition of, uh, definition of grace if you were able to earn it. Not only that, it would change Jesus' choice to your choice. And you don't want to be saved in the strength of your choice. You want to be saved in the strength of Jesus' choice of you. James Boyce says, it is difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons 
than the contrast between the important and sophisticated Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, and the simple Samaritan woman. Boyce says, if Nicodemus is an example of the truth that no one can rise so high as to be above salvation, the woman is an example of the truth that no one can sink so low as to be beneath it. John MacArthur says, Jesus' revelation of himself to this woman demonstrated that God's saving love knows no limitation. MacArthur says, it transcends all barriers, race, gender, ethnicity, religious tradition. In contrast to human love, divine love is indiscriminate and all-encompassing. What we have in John 4 is the gloriously impartial, divine initiative of God's grace and salvation, bearing down on a total failure, a human catastrophe, a prideful yet ignorant Samaritan woman steeped in sexual immorality. You know the story very well. Have you yourself ever felt like such a total failure as this woman is? You have nothing to live for? Angry with God and everyone else? Maybe you've had yourself suicidal thoughts? Have you been extremely sexually immoral and you have all the baggage, guilt, and shame in your heart to show for it? There's good news in the text for you. There's good news in this story of John, at John 4 for you. Because this, the Samaritan woman, she herself is a total failure. And yet her story is told because it proves the power of Jesus' love and grace over her and his ability to target unworthy people individual sinners, all of those that he has predestined to be his saints for the purpose of their salvation, regardless of how sinful they've been. That's glory. All manner of human failings are no match for the saving love and grace of Jesus Christ. And to that thought, you should say amen. You could never sin enough to stop Jesus from saving your sinful soul. You could never sin enough he overcomes every obstacle to get you saved if that's what he's choosing to do. Does that mean that you should keep on sinning your whole life so that more of his grace will abound? Not at all. What it does mean is that no one can ever tell you with a certain measure of feigned humility, I'm too sinful for God to want to save me. That's an absolute lie. It's a heinous feigned humility to hide behind. As a result, John 4 is a feel-good, power of God over wretched sinners, Calvinistic story. It makes us want to break out the comfort food like chicken fried steak, mashed potatoes, mac and cheese, pumpkin pie, and warm ourselves beside the eternal fire and warmth of God's love for believers, no matter how sinful we once were. And yet, for all of the fans of man's free will ability to save himself... From eternal destruction, this story will leave those people sorely disappointed because this woman simply won't use her free will to believe. In fact, William Hendrickson says, one would almost be justified in saying, for a while she is trying her utmost not to be saved. And yet, as we will see, Jesus targets her. He interrupts her life. He grieves her, seemingly grills her, tests her burdens her, convicts her of sin, corrects her failed theology, and in the face of all of her opposition, Jesus reveals his glory, gracing her with the absolute truth of his deity. 
John 4 is a story of the power of Jesus' love and grace to save a sin-filled, misguided, rebel heart. And for our great joy, let's consider now Jesus' pursuit of a seedy Samaritan woman as John tells the story for us in John chapter 4, verse 1, saying, Therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field where Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well is there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give to him will never thirst, ever. But the water that I will give... Him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come back here to draw. He said to her, Go, call your husband and come back here. The woman answered and said to him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came, and they were marveling that he was speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you speaking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Is this not the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Even now, 
He who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, and others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who bore witness, he told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. This is a story of intentional evangelism, deliberate delivery of living water, premeditated salvation. This, friends, is a story of grace. Jesus, of his own volition and will, chose to bring salvation to Samaria. He chose to evangelize a marginalized group of people whose hearts were full of hostility toward him simply because he was born a Jew. Where the woman never got Jesus a cup of cool water, Jesus did deliver into her heart rivers of living water, which sprung up to eternal life, saving others also. It, it's truly a contrast, isn't it? When we think about this story, and yet we see in our own world the intentional, deliberate, premeditated murder of women, children, and babies by Hamas terrorists in their attack on Israel just over a week ago. Those men planned for months to breach the walls of Israel and fly into civilian areas to deliver shocking and horrific destruction. Turning your Bibles to Galatians 6. Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, every human being delivers into this world that which consumes their heart. I'll say this again. Every human being delivers into this world that which consumes their heart. The Hamas terrorist hearts are consumed with hatred created by the worship of a God made in their own image, a guy named Allah. Allah approves of violence because the makers of Allah approve of violence. In sharp contrast, Jesus is consumed with grace and love because he is God wrapped in the flesh. As a result, Jesus' heart is filled with intentional love and premeditated joy through deliberate acts of salvation that he's going to perform, even as we see Jesus' goal in John 4 is the salvation of a seedy Samaritan woman. You have to love the metaphor Jesus employs as he brings about the salvation of many Samaritans. Jesus speaks of fields white for the harvest in John 4.25. This farming metaphor is used frequently in the Bible by many authors, and it truly is a great illustration for us, this farming metaphor. The metaphor works perfectly both individually and corporately. In the counseling office, I'll use this word picture to discuss the pain of the present harvest in life of a counselee in light of the seeds that were previously sown in their past. In John chapter 4, Jesus uses the analogy of the harvest in a broader, more corporate sense that makes believers farmers together with Jesus, tilling soil, sowing seed, reaping a spiritual harvest for eternally forgive, to, to apply eternal forgiveness and to save souls. So we need this farming illustration, this harvesting illustration, personally and corporately because of how it makes sense of our lives individually and our purpose as we grow together as a church. 
And I would hope you're familiar with Scripture's repeated use of the sowing, reaping, harvesting metaphor, both individually and corporately. Solomon addresses the individual harvest in our personal lives in Proverbs 11:18 when he says, "He who sows righteousness gets a true reward." This is the positive side of sowing and reaping in our personal lives. Solomon warns also of the negative side of sowing and reaping and saying in Proverbs 22:8, "He who sows unrighteousness will reap iniquity." Paul has the individual personal harvest in mind where you are in Galatians 6-7. The individual personal harvest sounds like this. Galatians 6-7, do not be deceived, friends. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. We understand the corporate sense of sowing, reaping, and harvesting from Paul's comment to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. And while explaining the corporate kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, Jesus uses this sowing, harvesting metaphor four times in four different illustrations. He says of himself in Matthew 13, 37, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Turn back in your Bibles to John 4. So we have this cultivating, harvesting metaphor, this sowing and reaping metaphor. It is, it is one to hold on to the whole duration of our lives. If you want to be helpful with your family, friends, neighbors, think of life in terms of a field and sowing seeds now that will be harvested later and harvesting now seeds that were previously sown. Hold on to that. Right now, friend, you are in a season of life during which you have previously sown seeds into the field of your life. And through time, you've added water to those seeds that you've sown. And God is the one who is allowing increase. And as you harvest this right now and you see the harvest of your life, you can make your own determination. What was the quality of the seeds that you were sowing previously? Was it a quality of righteousness or a quality of unrighteousness? Was it weeds that you were sowing or was it wheat? The question to ask would be then, friend, now, as you're here today, now, right now, with the field of your life, as it were, before you, are you happy with the harvest of your life today? Right now, are you harvesting righteousness? Are you harvesting wheat or are you harvesting weeds? Friends, here's good news for you. If you are currently harvesting in your life a field full of weeds, you've come to the right place to get help in the local church with the preaching of the Word of God. We can help with tilling the soil of your life. We can help with giving you seeds of righteousness to sow into your field. And we will be there with you in the harvest to help pluck out the weeds and to harvest in all the wheat. That's what happens in a local church. The Word of God not only gives us the seeds to sow for our sanctification and growth in Christ so that we can get rid of the weeds and enjoy seasons of bountiful harvest. Moreover, friends, the Word of God gives us the seeds to sow for salvation in the hearts of unbelievers around us. 
We must be concerned first with the field of our own lives and the harvest that we are reaping because of the seeds that we've sown. But we cannot forsake the fact that we have been called into spiritual harvesting with Jesus at the same time. Paul says in Romans 10, 17, So then faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Jesus expects us, our mouths, to be the ones doing the work of evangelism in our community today. He lived his life as an example for us of evangelism and how to reach this world with his gospel. Our hearts must be daily burdened with a desire to seek and save the lost. So friends, I ask you, does evangelism of the lost consume you? Are you part of those working the spiritual harvest? Do you see the spiritual fields as white for harvest? Perhaps your vision of the spiritual harvest is clouded out by the host of weeds in your own personal life. Perhaps you've lost sight of the purpose of Jesus' salvation of you. Perhaps you've been more consumed with the cares of this world than seeing sinners saved. Friend, where is your zeal in sharing Christ? Is he not worthy? Is he not the savior of your soul? Is he not your promised Messiah? Charles Spurgeon says this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertion. And let not one go there unwarned or unprayed for. In our text today, Jesus describes, sorry, John describes Jesus tilling soil for a spiritual harvest in Samaria. In our text today, John reports eight aspects of spiritual cultivation that prove Jesus' great care in saving lost souls. In our text today, John presents eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling, which resulted in significant spiritual fruit. The first of these eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling we find at number one in your notes, timely coming. The timely coming of Jesus. Number one in your notes, timely coming. The first of eight reflections of John about Jesus' spiritual soil tilling. We see this in verses one through six. Timely coming. At the end of John 3, Jesus was baptizing outside of Jerusalem in the countryside villages of Judea, while John the Baptist was in the north, closer to Galilee. Jesus did not plan to stay long in Judea near Jerusalem. He had a specific goal to accomplish before leaving, which is noted by the Apostle John when he writes in John 4.1. Therefore, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, at that moment, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, at that time, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee, once he got that news. Jesus' ministry operated in parallel with John the Baptist. But as John the Baptist himself said in John 3.30, he must increase and I must decrease. An increase is exactly what Jesus' ministry did, to the extent that it caught the attention of the Pharisees, which was Jesus' plan all along before he left Judea. 
get these Pharisees to leave the Baptist alone to do his little washing and repentance forerunner ministry. Get them to target Jesus. John is the little fish. Leave him alone. Jesus is the big fish. Pay attention to that guy. Go after him, you Pharisees. Jesus wanted this to happen, and he gets it to happen. Of course he does. Before leaving Judea. At John 4.3, the apostle John presents Jesus as on the march, headed north to Galilee. For Jews coming out of Jerusalem, headed north to Galilee, there are a couple of travel options which are dependent on your adherence to social norms, traditional practices, the level of bigotry in your heart, and the race-based hatred that you might have in your mind. Option A is to head down into the Jordan River Valley off to the east and make your way up the east side of the Jordan River until you come to Galilee. It's a slightly longer route, but it keeps you entirely out of contact with Samaritans. Option B was to head west to the Mediterranean coast, uh, coastline before heading north again to avoid entire contact with Samaritans. This was the longest, however, of the three travel options. Option C was the shortest. Option C is head straight north from Jerusalem, staying in the hill country, going through Samaria, which is the most direct route to Galilee. James Boyce says, normally, Orthodox Jews would take the eastern route across the Jordan River. It was longer, but it avoided Samaria. They did this because of their hostility toward the Samaritans. At John 4.4, Jesus shows his continual Blatant refusal to play the racist, bigoted games of traditional practice and hate-based social norms. He broke tradition and religious practices while in Jerusalem, and he would do more of the same as he headed north to Galilee, which we see in his travel option that he decided on. Jesus decided on travel option C, go straight north, come into direct contact with the Samaritan people which we see as we read John 4, 4, where John says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, this decision demands that we ask two questions. Why must Jesus take the short route straight north to Galilee? Why must Jesus pass through Samaria? Be assured, brothers and sisters, this was not because Jesus needed to get get to Galilee quickly. The Greek construction in John 4, 4 uses two verbs with the focus being on necessity. The Greek verb day leaves no room for another plan. This travel plan of Jesus is mandatory. There are no other options for him. It is a requirement for Jesus, even, you can say, a divine obligation. Leon Morris says, the expression points to a compelling divine necessity. John MacArthur says the Lord was compelled to pass through Samaria and stop in a certain village, not to save time and steps, but because he had a divine appointment there. And James Boyce says when John tells us that Jesus must needs go through Samaria, he obviously means Jesus has to go that way to meet the Samaritan woman. There is a strength and a force to the Greek verb day, must, that tells and even screams of divine sovereignty and predetermined appointments ordained by God. Brothers and sisters, I need to ask you, have you ever felt this way about events in your life personally? 
that God has ordained and predetermined events and circumstances and appointments with people? Have you ever come to understand that God is sovereignly orchestrating the circumstances and details of your life in such a way that His presence is unavoidable and His outcome is secure? Does it excite you? Does it frustrate you? Does it frighten you to know that God is orchestrating all things? Do you understand that God is orchestrating all things for the good of those who love God? As we read from Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 28. Does this give you comfort and peace, friend? Or does this fact of God's sovereignty and predetermination, does this give you anxiety and worry? Well, brothers and sisters, my hope is that this is a cause of great joy, peace, and rest for you in this life. My my hope would be that this would strip away all of your anxious thoughts and careless worries. In fact, in light of this truth, all of our anxiety and worry are proven to be pointless by the power of God who must craft the events and affairs of men for His glory and our good. Inevitably, in saying these comments this week, In our nation and world's history, someone would unquestionably want to ask and has these questions in their mind. They would say to me, Pastor Oliver, then how can you justify God's orchestrating, as you said, of the evil of Hamas in Israel last week? Did God not care to stop the murder and beheading of 40 babies and more? Was God okay with that? Friends, if these are your questions, please allow me to answer you this way. No, God is not pleased with the murder of anyone made in His image and likeness. Yes, God will repay with justice and wrath all of those who murder the innocent and terrorize the helpless. But let me say this to you. Let me push back on you. If these are your questions and your thoughts, let me ask you, the one who would question God, let me ask you a few questions. Who are you, O man, to suggest the evil actions of men are themselves the actions of God? Would you strip those people of their personhood and their free will and project it onto God? Who are you to suggest that because evil happens that God is impotent? that he's unable or unwilling to stop it? Who are you to suggest that God allowed this evil because he is unloving and uncaring? Are you dissatisfied that God gave men the freedom to violate his commands? Would you rather that God made us all robots so that we only ever obey him? How dare you suggest that my God can't do both? A, allow for free will beings to make their wicked sinful choices and then B, fix and punish the evil that men commit against one another. How dare you say my God can't do both of those two things? Who are you to tell God that he is not in charge of making right all that Hamas has made wrong? And I know he will. How can you... How do you possibly pretend to know that God won't use evil for good? Haven't we seen this time and time again? Men throw lemons at God and God makes lemonade? Can't you do this in your own life, friend? 
turn the evil actions of men into glorious actions of grace? Isn't that the very purpose of many adoptions? What portion of the Bible have you read? How little do you understand of the cross of Jesus Christ? Everywhere, at every point in human history, God causes good to flow out of the evil free will choices of sin-sick men. Friends, evil will never triumph because Jesus defeated evil, sin, Satan, and death on the cross, which was the most evil act ever performed by men, and yet the cross is the ultimate proof that evil will never stop the glory of God who causes all things to work together for our good. Let me make sure that you understand the facts about what happened last week in Israel one step further. Friend, you need to understand that those murdered babies were graced by God with unmerited salvation, and they are in heaven right now. You also need to understand that those wicked Hamas terrorists will face the wrath of God for their evil when he sends them to hell because they'll never repent for the things that they've done. And if God wants to grace any one of those murderous, evil terrorists with the gift of salvation, friend, I would ask you this. Who are you or I to stop God from saving one of them? Are you better than the Hamas terrorist? Is that why God chose to save you because you've never killed an innocent baby? Is that God's baseline for eternal life? What amount of sin is, is God's salvation unable to overcome? How much sin did God have to overcome in saving you? You know, you, you probably think very little of that question. That's one of our problems. We think very little of that question. How much sin did God overcome to save you? If we really understood the forgiveness that we've received of our sins, we should humbly want the same forgiveness for everybody else. It's very hypocritical to love God's patience, long-suffering grace, and mercy for us when we are evil, bitterly angry, hurtful, and hateful to others, but to then not want God to extend the same patience, long-suffering, mercy, and grace to others whose sins are visually worse than ours. It is for this reason Jesus must head north into Samaria because the seedy Samaritan woman won't save herself and can't save herself. And yet, she, friends, was predestined by God to be in heaven with Jesus forever. She was. And for this reason, Jesus must, needs, head north through the hostile country of Samaria. And so we read in John chapter 4, verse 5, So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Jacob is an extremely familiar name in Judaism. He is one of the patriarchs of the faith. It seems that Samaria should be the country of friends, not foes. It, it should cause us to ask the question, where did the hostility come from between the Jews and the Samaritans? Why is it such a big deal for Jesus to head here first after leaving Judea? Turn your Bibles to 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17. As I hope that you know... The nation of Israel was divided after the deaths of King David and King Solomon. The sons of King Solomon fought one another, and they split the nation of Israel into two. Rehoboam ruled Judah in the south, while Jeroboam ruled Israel in the north. 
the tribes were split as well. Ten took refuge with Jeroboam in the north, while Benjamin and Judah were the only two tribes under the rule of Rehoboam in the south. And for hundreds of years, Israel and Judah, these two now nations that were divided out of one, will be ruled by a host of wicked kings. One of those wicked kings in the north was Omri. Omri, in 1 Kings 16, moved the northern kingdom's capital to a city on a hill, which he purchased from a man named Shemer in 879 B.C. Omri renamed the city Samaria, and it remained the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel until the Lord sent the Assyrian army to destroy Israel in 722 B.C. You're in 2 Kings 17 where that happens, where we read, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hosea, the son of Elah, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, went up against him, and Hosea became his servant and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, who had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria went up against the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and took Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in Halah and Habor on the river of Gozan in the cities of the Medes. Not only were the Israelites in Samaria then taken captive and hauled off to Assyria, worse still, the king of Assyria sent pagan foreigners from other lands to come and live and occupy Samaria. Samaria now would become a melting pot of people and religions. R.C. Sproul says, not surprisingly, this mixture produced syncretistic religious practices. After years then of intermarrying, the Samaritans had become a mixed race of people practicing syncretism, with Yahweh being a central figure based solely on ethnic tradition. Interestingly, when Ezra and Nehemiah came to Jerusalem in the 5th century BC to rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, reestablish communication with God, the Samaritans asked if they could help in the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But they were firmly told no. In Ezra 4.2, when the heads of the house of Zerubbabel rightly said to the Samaritans, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. Turn back in your Bibles to John 4. The Samaritans responded with isolation from the Jews in the south. And they continued their syncretistic worship at Mount Gerizim, where they had their own temple built. And yet... To make matters more hateful and more worse between the Jews and the Samaritans during the 400 years of silence after God sent no more prophets, known as the intertestamental period, the 400 years before the arrival of Christ, the Jews in that time actually destroyed, they went up into Samaria and they destroyed the Samaritan temple at Mount Gerizim in 128 BC. And so 128 years later, you have Jesus and he's walking up to Samaria with all of these things in the history of these people. D.A. Carson says, Jews viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. 2,000 years ago, the Samaritans accepted the Pentateuch, 
the first five books of Moses, but they rejected all of the prophets and the history and the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. And between their bad doctrine, their syncretistic worship, and their sordid half-breed history, the Jews in Jesus' day felt entirely justified in their bigotry and race-based hatred of the Samaritans. The patriarch Jacob did build a well in Samaria, and he did give it to his son Joseph. And generation after generation of Jacob's descendants used that well even up to this very day, friends. R.C. Sproul says this well is still here today, right at the base of Mount Gerizim. And the water still flows freely into it. That well has been meeting the needs of people for 4,000 years even this patriarchal point of historical continuity between the Samaritans and the Jews is not enough to end the hatred and hostility between these two groups, except for Jesus, who refuses to recognize the race-based hatred of his people, the Jews, against the Samaritans. And so we read in John 4, 6, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour you'll notice that Jesus arrives right on time for his predestined appointment with a seedy Samaritan woman. It's the sixth hour, that's noon. Jesus has been traveling and John reports Jesus is wearied. Wearied gives the occasion for us to speak about Jesus' humanity. Surely as God, Jesus did not need to be tired, but the point of Jesus' earthly ministry was sacrifice and service for his people in the flesh so that he would be a faithful high priest for us having struggled with the same frailties of the flesh that we know. The author of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. The fact that Jesus was wearied is proof for us that Jesus truly took on flesh. The glory of God was truly veiled in the Son of God, because His flesh has limitations, just like you and I experience many, many physical limitations because we're in the flesh and it's stuck on the ground by gravity. And so we see Jesus' timely coming for spiritual harvest in the fact that Jesus was wearied from His journeys right on time. And Jesus took a seat at Jacob's well right on time. And look at this, friends. A seedy Samaritan woman shows up right on time for Jesus to minister living water to her spiritually starving soul. Notice Jesus comes first, always. Just like the Garden of Eden, so too here, Jesus comes to men when men don't want to come to Jesus. We read this as we come to John chapter 4, verse 7, where the apostle says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now, because we live in crazy times, please allow me to give the most obvious question its answer with regard to this text. What is a woman? A woman is an adult biological female created by God to be man's helper with whom she shares equality and value before God as both male and female were made in the image and likeness of God. To be sure, the Samaritan woman is a biological female. Okay, we're clear. Okay, good. It's noon, midday. Why draw water now? Who wants to carry a large water pot in the heat of the day? Her arrival at noon, friends, is revealing to us. 
It's telling in regard to her character. Something is amiss because this woman is not keeping other social norms and customs. R.C. Sproul says, ordinarily the women of the village drew water early in the morning or after sunset, not in the heat of the day. And they, would go, and they would get a daily supply of water for drinking, for bathing, for cleaning their utensils and clothes. Also, says Sproul, the women normally would come to the well as a group. We can add to her eccentric choice to arrive at Jacob's well at noon the fact that she had to pass by several other wells that were closer to her before she came to this one. John MacArthur notes, she would rather walk the extra distance in the hottest time of the day than face the hostility and scorn of other women at the closer well earlier in the day. When she sees Jesus sitting at the well, she is probably especially relying on social customs of the first century, which tell both the woman and Jesus that this situation requires your silence. But Jesus doesn't have anything to do with silence. He has come for confrontation. He has specifically come for salvation. And so he speaks with her in chapter 4, verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, verse 8, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Her precious silence is shattered in this moment. She would have been entirely comfortable maintaining social norms, but then Jesus had to burst through the silence and put put her on edge with his seemingly rude request, which even comes across as a command, does it not? Why this command? Why this request? When breaking the social customs, why is Jesus here asking for help and indicating that he is himself needy? Isn't the opposite true? Isn't she the needy one? She is the needy one, which brings us to the second of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling. The second of eight reflections of Jesus' spiritual soil tilling is number two in your note, the tests of character. We see now from verses 7 through 20, tests of character, even five of them. The Samaritan woman needs to be broken and contrite in spirit. She is not. She's bitter and hard-hearted. Knowing all of this, Jesus tests the Samaritan woman's character. He gives her five tests which reveal the content of her character, and the results, friend, aren't pretty. What is the goal of the five tests that Jesus gives to this woman? What does Jesus need to learn about her? Nothing. Jesus knows the woman better than she knows herself. These tests are for her to see that in the field of her own life, her choices have made her defensive. Her choices have made her hard-hearted. She is bitter and angry. She's full of shame and guilt. She's been unwilling to end her immorality. She's found her ways to justify her behavior. Her conscience has been calloused over. She maintains a tough outer facade, but inside she is entirely a broken mess. And she is needy. She is the one who's needy at the well. Even if her bold, sinful, prideful personality projects otherwise. William Hendrickson says, in the process of winning the soul of this woman, Jesus appeals to her sympathy, to her curiosity, to her desire for ultimate rest and satisfaction, and he appeals to her conscience. Hendrickson says, he addresses himself to every phase of her personality in order that the goal may be reached. Friends, don't kid yourself one bit. We have all been right here where this Samaritan woman is at, many of us even this morning. Proud, Heart of heart, 
tied to sin, bitter, angry, full of shame and guilt, but unwilling to confess and repent for the mess we've made of our lives. Every human soul must end up at this place. And the path out is always the same. We must be shown God's righteous standard for our behavior in contrast to our actual behavior. We need the mercy and grace of a forgiving Savior willing to strike up relationship with us and call out our sin. We need to have our character exposed through trials and testing. This is what our God so graciously does for us. And it is what Jesus does to the Samaritan woman here as we arrive at the first of five tests of character. Let's look then at the first of five tests of character in the text. We'll see the first of five tests of character in verses 7 through 9 as we see test number one, the test of submission. The test of submission, verses 7 through 9. Remember, this woman is being targeted by Jesus for salvation. This is not a random chance encounter or a strange coincidence that she happens to be all alone with Jesus at the well at noon. This, friends, is orchestrated. Jesus has set the disciples off into the city to buy food in order to be alone with this woman when she comes at noon. His disciples didn't fetch him water before they left, nor does Jesus have a water pot or rope to draw water. What does that mean? Not only has Jesus made himself weary from walking, he has made himself needy on purpose so that he can reasonably give this command to a culturally inferior woman. And so he says to her, from his place of weariness and need, give me a drink. This is brilliant. This is a test of submission. She can see that he doesn't have the physical means to help himself. His need and request require a response. The best response for her to give would be the easiest one, the simplest one, Sure, let me take care of that for you. William Hendrickson says, asking was a manifestation of divine strategy and of psychological insight. For if you wish to gain entrance into the heart of another person, two methods can be employed. A, do that person a favor. B, give that person an opportunity to do you a favor. Often, says Hendrickson, B is more effective than A. Rightly considered, says Hendrickson, however, Jesus combined both B with A. Frederick Godet says this, Jesus is not unaware that the way to gain a soul is often to ask a service of it. Where many might join the Samaritan woman and consider Jesus' command rude, chauvinistic, toxic masculinity, overbearing and condescending, it is, friends, exactly the opposite. This is common grace. This is a command for grace. It opens the door for their lives to cross paths. It encourages kindness. This is a basic test of submission. This is a simple request that should receive a simple, sure, no problem, happy to help. Friends, there is something for us to learn in this request of Jesus. When you acknowledge that you are needy, you are opening a door for others to serve you, which creates relationship, which affords service and righteousness under the glory of God. How many of you regularly acknowledge that you're needy? 
How many of you, when it comes to prayer time in your community group, say, I'll pray for diligence for me? There's something more than that in your life, though, isn't there? You're needy. You need help. You don't have the tools to do this life on your own, and neither do I. So who are we kidding? Who are we fooling? Why are we stopping the glory of God through service of others for us? Do you see the need to express your neediness? Can you see the value of requesting help from others? Do you see the relational doors that are open by admitting your need for help? Where could you make requests for the service of others to build relationships? Do you do that? Consider also how humanely Jesus is treating this woman by opening a door of relationship through a request for her service of him. Who else would allow this woman to serve them? No one. She was an outcast, but here is Jesus drawing the outcast in by way of a simple request out of his need. Where others would say nothing and maintain silence, which is how we treat people when we don't like them and don't want to interact with them. We just pull our, oh, I'm an introvert. And and we, we pull the introvert card and tuck ourselves off into a corner. Jesus doesn't do that. He chooses to interact. He chooses to be susceptible to rejection. He chooses to express need. He chooses to break through all manner of cultural, social, racial, religious barriers by acknowledging that this Samaritan woman could meet a need of his. She could meet a need of his. He's God. What need can she meet of his? This one. This is all grace, friends. It is a test of submission that requires very little extra effort from her. Of all the tests that are going to come her way, if she would have done this one well and just got Jesus a cup of cool water with a smile, perhaps Jesus' testing would have been kinder and gentler. How did she do on her tests, friends? What grade would you give the Samaritan woman on Jesus' test of submission? F. She failed miserably. We see her failure at the test of submission when we read John 4, 9. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? Then John gives his exegetical commentary, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Where Jesus' command actually opened a door to relationship between a Jew and a Samaritan, between a man and a woman, a rabbi and an outcast, her question seeks to close that door so quickly. Brothers and sisters, this is not submission. This is racial hostility, gender hostility, a total lack of humility. This is pride. She's condemning Jesus for daring to step through the cultural barriers that allow her to enjoy her silence in this moment. She wants her silence. She is actively now trying to shame Jesus for being kind and unbigoted against her. Jesus was thinking the best of her. She began thinking the worst of him once he opened his mouth. Her answer is unkind and a total failure of Jesus' test of submission. She is unsubmissive and unkind. He broke the silence that she was enjoying, and now she wants answers. You tell me, sir. Why are you so rude? Why are you so inappropriate? Why are you so oblivious to the color of my skin versus your skin? Are you so blind? You need to be quiet, sir. She wanted the silence back, to be left alone. But that's not what he came for because that's not what will help her. Jesus came to get into her business, to test her character, to show her her need. Clearly, she doesn't like or approve of Jesus' social rule-breaking, 
nor is she concerned about his need, though she can see he is weary from traveling and has nothing with which to draw water. Brothers and sisters, from where does her hostility arise? Why not be submissive and get the man a cup of cool water? What's so difficult about this? Her heart. Her heart is the problem. She possesses a heart of stone that wants only to serve self. James Boyce asks the questions. Did she pass by the disciples on the way? Did she pass by them? How did they treat her when she walked by? Did she respond to Jesus after seeing the Jews just moments before and maybe they had mistreated her? Probably she came to the bottom of the hill, says Boyce, with the fresh reminder of the hatred of the Jews in her, in her mind. And as soon as she got to the well, the first thing that she discovered was another Jew. And then this Jew opened his mouth and starts asking her questions, giving her commands. How dare he? But where is her basic sense of kindness and submission to a man who willingly expresses need? She doesn't have kindness. She's all out of submission. She speaks out of an abundance of her heart. Her heart is full of pride and sin. Jesus knew this about her, and it is his joy to ask her for a drink so that she might begin to see the many failures of her character and the pridefulness and folly bound up in her heart. Jesus is breaking her. His tests are targeted at wearing down her pride and working off the callous that covers her heart from years of sin-filled, shame-filled behavior. William Hendrickson says, though she opposes the efforts of Christ, the bulwarks of opposition were being broken down one by one until finally, and in her case, perhaps rather suddenly, grace penetrates and achieves the victory. This story is a story of evangelism. It's the story of the love of Jesus Christ that does not wait around in heaven for you to decide to love him, which would never happen. Contrary to waiting, Jesus comes. He targets. He begins to save the unworthy despite all of their objections. That is what we see happening here in John 4, even as we will continue looking at Jesus' tests of her character next week. But as we close our time, brothers and sisters, let me ask you a question. What is the content of your character? What are the thoughts and meditations of your heart? How is Jesus using John's retelling of Jesus' evangelism of the Samaritan woman 2,000 years ago to evangelize, convict, burden, and break your heart now in Mead, Washington? Is Jesus coming, friend, to you now in a timely manner as difficulties in your life arise? As the, the harvest of the field of your life bears down with many weeds. Can you sense that there might be help from someone so supreme, so sovereign, who knows how to pick the weeds out and help you sow seed that will lead to a fruitful harvest? Is Jesus testing your humility, submission, kindness, and mindless adherence to cultural norms? Is Jesus calling you out of your isolation, out of your silence and sinful rebellion, into submission to him today. That's what he wants from all of us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we marvel that this message of yours goes freely to every single human being on the face of the earth. It is impartial. You show no partiality to us. But then you do this right here, what we see in the text. 
you apply grace. This woman did not merit this. She does not earn this. But you come in grace and power. You come in a way that we cannot avoid your breaking of us and your love for us. And I just pray that every person in this room is at or soon will be at the place of brokenness and submission before you. Not because they're good, but because you're full of grace and you pursue wicked sinners just like us. We thank you for this time and we want to sing your praise now. In the name of Jesus, amen.